0: I feel like I'm late to the party here. Well, if you've got a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Hebrews 2. We'll be looking at the first four verses this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we do have pew Bibles there uh, in front of you. You can find the text on page 1001. Uh, Let me also, while you're finding uh, that passage of Scripture, let me invite you to take your bulletin insert and turn to the side that has the sermon outline. You see... This picture that's at the top of the page with the theme that just simply says Jesus is better. Uh, Now, if you've been to the eye doctor's office, chances are you've seen this device. It's called a phoropter and it's used to manually determine refraction. Now, more specifically, it tells the eye doctor how a lens must be shaped or curved to correct your vision to its normal state. And what I find interesting about this machine is that it is dependent upon the patient for effectiveness. Its value is based solely on the patient's visual perception and their responses to the eye doctor's questions. And so as you look through the machine, the eye doctor will ask you, is image one better than image two? And in some ways it creates a little bit of anxiety in us because at some point, we get to the sense which we can't tell the difference. And that's actually a good thing. You want to get it so that the images are indistinguishable in clarity. And when that happens, the machine has done its job and has helped to correct your vision. You now have a prescription that you can take and get glasses or, or contacts that will enable you to have normal vision. And you're thankful. You're thankful because clearer is better. And Hebrews is a kind of spiritual phoropter in this way. It presents all of the sources of salvations the Jews were looking to in the Old Testament. All the sources of revelation and rescue provided for by God. Angels, the Mosaic law, Moses, the prophets, the priests, and even the temple. Each Savior was a type of image that when compared to Jesus was found to be blurry and fuzzy. All throughout this book we'll see Jesus being viewed through this spiritual phoropter against the other Old Testament saviors. And every time Jesus is clearly found to be the better Savior, the better Redeemer, the better Mediator, now, for us, it's not hard to see Christ's superiority over these Old Testament saviors, is it? I mean, we didn't grow up in the ancient Near East. We didn't grow up in a Jewish household or culture. In fact, some of us may have grown up in churches or families that dismissed the relevance of the Old Testament altogether. But while it may not be difficult to see Christ's superiority over Old Testament saviors, I would argue that it can be difficult for us to see Christ's superiority over our American saviors. Just like these Old Testament saviors were written into the Jewish culture, so too are our American saviors written into the fabric of our culture. And sadly, even sometimes the larger church culture And just to be clear, what do I mean by Savior? Well, a Savior is anyone or anything that we look to in order to deliver us or rescue us from the brokenness of our lives and world. And so for our American saviors, we could talk about the unholy trinity of materialism, consumerism, individualism. We could talk about saviors like addictions, zip codes, marriage and family, political candidates, religion and social justice, which is different from biblical justice, just to name a few. Each of these saviors promise a better salvation, a clearer path of deliverance from our brokenness. But seeing the light of a spiritual phoropter, their salvation is blurred. Instead of delivering us out of our brokenness, they deliver us into greater brokenness but jesus offers and provides real salvation and as we'll see in our text our choice of savior is not merely a matter of personal preference it is a matter of life and death and so let's look at hebrews 2 beginning in verse 1 i'll read just the first four verses While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you in this hour and we uh, ask you, we plead of you, we beg of you that you would speak to us through your word. That your Holy Spirit would awaken us, Father, not just physically, but spiritually. Father, that we would not be given to drift. That you would keep us on course. We pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Well, my car just turned 20 years old a few months ago. That's not exactly a reason to celebrate other than I haven't had a car payment in quite a while. At this point, I'm just grateful that my car gets me to point A to point B reliably and safely. But I must admit, it does so in a pedestrian kind of way. You see, when my car was built 20 years ago, there wasn't the kind of technology available to us today. Things like lane assistance systems were not a part of my uh, standard car. Uh, My lane assistance system had always been my wife, Denise, saying, pay attention when I drifted into another lane. Nowadays, of course, those systems are standard so that when your car drifts, you're warned with a series of beeps and lights. And in some instances, your car will automatically correct itself. But cars aren't the only things that can drift. Our beliefs can drift as well. It's what prompted the writer of Hebrews to write this letter. The, this Jewish Christian audience was beginning to drift as they faced and cultural pressures pressures to reject jesus as the messiah god's anointed savior pressures to return to judaism pressures to conform back to their jewish culture you and i also face pressures that can cause us to drift in our beliefs as well difficult circumstances and trials can cause our beliefs to drift The pressure to conform to the world can cause our beliefs to drift. The exclusivity of Christ's claims in a world of inclusivity can cause our beliefs to drift. And when our beliefs drift, our lives will drift. Richard Phillips writes this. He says, there is a current to this present evil age. Pulling strongly out from the safe harbor of salvation in Christ we do, not acti- we do not have to actively betray Jesus or renounce our faith. Simply by not paying attention, by becoming preoccupied with the sights and sounds of this world, we can be easily drawn out until we are swept away forever. How can we keep from this kind of drift? Or any other kind of drift for that matter? Well, the writer of Hebrews offers us A lane assistance system, if you will, to keep us from drifting, to help us to be more alert and pay attention. And the first thing that we see in our text that we are told is to pay attention to what we have heard. The writer of Hebrews says it plainly enough in verses one through three a look at your text. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now I find it interesting that the Greek word for pay attention here has nautical implications. It can refer to either holding a course or a heading as well as securing an anchor. So as we pay attention to God's Word, it's like a rudder that both guides our lives as well as an anchor that secures our lives. And yet the waters of the cultural sea that we are sailing in are not calm. They are turbulent. There are swift undercurrents that would take us under, that would unmoor our lives from either the safe harbor of, of salvation in Christ, or they would push us off course from reaching that safe harbor. And notice He doesn't just say, pay attention to what we have heard, but to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The stakes are high. Our hands must be firmly fixed. We mustn't take our eyes off the truth we have heard. And what was it that they needed To see and hear. What is it that we need to see and hear? That Jesus wasn't just a great prophet or an angel sent from God. He was God. He was God's Son. He was the Creator, the Sustainer, the Redeemer of His people. He wasn't simply the messenger of God's salvation. He was the message and means of God's salvation. He was the long-awaited Savior that had been promised. Their search was over. But maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, I really don't understand why I need saving in the first place. What, what, what is it about salvation that I need? And I think that's a great question to ask. And the answer comes from verse 2 and the message we see declared by the angels. Now commentators agreed that the angels' message referred to the Mosaic Law, which was given by God to Moses And the Hebrew nation. And the law was good in that it provided a reliable or right way of living in light of who God was. It laid out what a right relationship with God and neighbor would look like. And because we were made by God and made for God, we were bound to live under that law. But it became clear that we were unable to live rightly before God and neighbor and it wasn't because the law was somehow deficient the writer said the law proved to be reliable it was sufficient no the law wasn't deficient we were deficient because of our sin we were transgressors the text says and what we did what uh, in that we did what was wrong and we were disobedient in that we failed to do what was right and because god is just Every sin against Him and against man must be punished. Verse 2 said that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, a just reward. And as the Apostle Paul would later say in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the law was also good in that it pointed to and provided a way for rescue of lawbreakers. It provided rescue through the sacrificial system in which an animal could be sacrificed as our substitute. It could stand in our place of judgment. The guilt that was on our head could be laid on the animal's head. Yet we'll see later on in Hebrews that the sacrificial system couldn't ultimately save people. It only pointed to the need of a greater Savior. Of the Great Savior. And that is the message God declared and the message that we must pay close attention to. There is no other way. There is no other means for salvation. There is no escaping God's judgment of sin outside of trusting in Christ's salvation. But here's the rub. Many of us know and believe this message. We know that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life. But because of our own hearts and the world's pressure to conform, we can easily drift in what I would call being middle class in spirit. And what do I mean by that? Well, to be middle class in spirit is to think that God ought to answer our prayers and bless us for the many good things that we've done. I've given this. I've served here. I've helped this group of people. And we ask, where's my reward? We can even think that God somehow might owe us for all the self-denying, cross-bearing, Christ-following that we've done in our life. One writer might call this the sin of demandingness. But I think it's just really being middle class in spirit. Because what kind of spirit does God bless? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, it is the poor in spirit that are blessed. It's those who are deeply in debt before God and know that they have zero ability to redeem themselves. They know that it is God's generosity at great cost to Himself and to His Son that has saved them. And they remind themselves of that over and over again. They study it. They meditate on it. They pray over it. And when they begin to feel that slightest sense of worthiness before God, They remind themselves that it is Christ and Him only that makes them worthy. And I think this is one of the ways that we could see Romans 12 interpreted where he says, in view of God's mercy, do not be conformed. Do not be squeezed into having a middle class and spirit mindset, but be transformed, be made new by the renewal of your mind. Resist the drift by playing by paying close attention to what you have heard, which is the gospel. Let your mind and your heart be guided into the safe harbor of Christ's salvation. Anchor your mind firmly in His finished work on the cross for you. And this close attention not only applies to what we've heard... But to what's been attested. And that's actually the second point which you may want to correct in your outline. I I changed my mind after the bulletin insert was printed. It should read, pay attention to what's been attested. In verse 3, we read that this great salvation was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard it. Now, to attest something is to verify it it's to authenticate it it's to validate it and and you do this through examination it so happens that i did that as a public accountant many many years ago i would be dispatched to one of our clients to examine their financial records and i was there to attest to the accuracy of those records And so I examined their inventory sheets of, say, car parts or tractors, and I verified or attested to their counts. And I did that by counting random samples and then comparing my count with their count. And based on my findings, I was able to attest to the accuracy of their financial records. Now, what was the value of that service? Was it just so that they could have accurate records? No, we provided that service so that our clients could make business decisions based on accurate information. It's so that investors could make informed decisions about buying stocks in that company. It wasn't just about getting the numbers right. You see, it was about giving the company and investors confidence to make decisions. Now, in our text, The writer of Hebrews and his audience had not been eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. They had not heard his teaching or witnessed his miracles firsthand. They hadn't been present at Jesus' crucifixion or his resurrection. But they had heard from those who had been eyewitnesses. And those eyewitnesses were able to verify, to attest to all the things these first-generation Christians had heard regarding Jesus. They were able to verify the claims that had been made by Jesus and about Jesus with those who were actually with Him. And that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Because the value of attesting or validating these claims with eyewitnesses, it wasn't just so they could have an accurate history of Jesus. No, the value of attesting was that it gave these early Christians confidence to base their life upon those claims. And it does so for us as well. I mean, do you realize that we base our lives on the veracity of those claims made about Jesus in Scripture? This is not a small thing. If Jesus is who He said that He was and it has been attested by eyewitnesses of the church and written down in four Gospels and letters to the churches, we not only can have confidence in the truthfulness of His claims, but we are accountable to live them out. For example, our sexual ethics are shaped by the veracity of Christ's claims. The Apostle Paul addressed a drift he saw in the Corinthian church that sadly has relevance even in our culture today. It's the idea that sex or sexual immorality outside of marriage is okay. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Don't be fooled. Sex is a life-uniting act. It is not simply physical It is emotional, it is spiritual, it is the whole person. And Paul says that sex outside of marriage is in fact a sin against your own body. All of our lives, all of our desires are to be under the Lordship of Christ. And he ends that section by saying to them and to us, you are not your own. You were bought with a price So glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. Christ Himself purchased you. He ransomed you from the bondage of sin. Therefore, you and I are to live for Him. In truth, we're accountable to Him Not just with our sexual ethics, but with our relationships, our work, our play, our very lives. And we've seen this faithfully play out in successive generations, beginning with those first century Christians. There is this incredible succession of attestors each in each generation. Each generation verifying the claims of Christ and his word from the one before it, but not merely verifying the claim with their words but by their very lives. We see this in Hebrews 12 as we read of being surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, a great cloud of attestors. Therefore, because of these faithful witnesses, we are called to cast off the burdens and drift of sin. The sin which not only clings to us, but would seek to pull us off course and to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? To Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, our Savior. And so if we would keep our beliefs and our lives from drifting, we must pay attention to what we have heard. We must pay attention to what has been attested to us. And finally, we must pay attention to what's been given. We read again, beginning in the middle of verse 3, It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. What we see here is that the gospel came in power. It came with signs and wonders and miracles. And on the one hand, it is right for us to talk about the gospel in terms of restoring a right relationship with God. For Christ Jesus did just that. Through His atoning work on the cross, He satisfied God's judgment against us. He legally justified us before God so that we stood before God no longer guilty. And He reconciled us to Himself so that we might become sons and daughters. But Christ's salvation wasn't simply a legal work. It was a recreation work. It was a renewing work. It was work of restoration of what had been lost. And while much of Jesus' ministry came in words, it also came in power. The blind were healed. The lame were made to walk. The dead were raised. The possessed were set free. Each of these signs pointed to the ultimate recreating, restoring work of Christ when His kingdom would come in full. You see, the gospel doesn't just change our eternal destination. It changes our earthly disposition. It changes who we are and what we're living for from the inside out. The power of the gospel enables us to forgive those who wrong us. It gives us the power to love our enemies. It gives us the power to endure trials and sufferings. It gives us the power to build relationships with those who are different from us. It gives us the power to use our ambition for others and not ourselves. To forgive like this, to love like this, to serve like this is not natural to our sinful flesh. But the power of the gospel changes All of it. As we recognize that, as we see that in ourselves and in one another, not only do we keep from drifting, but others are kept as well. In John 13, Jesus gives the disciples a new commandment, which is to love one another. To the degree that He loved them. And this was to be radical love. This was sacrificial love. And to the extent that they loved that way. To the degree that we love that way. He says by this all people will know. That you are my disciples. If you have love. For one another. And while those signs and wonders. Accompanied Christ's ministry on earth. He left us an eternal witness. He gave us the Holy Spirit who not only confirms the truth of the Gospel, but empowers us to participate in His Gospel movement. The kind of Gospel movement He's already doing in a place like the Rivermont neighborhood. He invites us into that Gospel movement, not as spectators, but as participators. And He empowers us through the giving of gifts. Gifts given by the Holy Spirit according to His will. Gifts that will showcase the power of God to use His people to accomplish His purposes. As we get closer to our Rivermont neighborhood Easter egg hunt outreach on April the 8th, I wonder how God would use you. What gift has He given you that you could offer up for His kingdom purposes? It could be as simple as stuffing eggs or placing invitations on doorknobs. It could be striking up a conversation with someone who's in line to get food. The Spirit has wisely and purposefully given you a gift, your brother or sister in Christ. How would you steward it so that the power of the gospel could be seen through you and into the neighborhood? The truth is, We all suffer from a spiritual short attention span and are prone to drift. I love how Scotty Smith, who was our guest preacher for our fall mission conference, put it. He said in a worship class that I attended, we were made to wonder, but we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. How can we keep from drifting? How can we keep from wandering? By fixing our attention, by fixing our eyes upon Jesus and the great salvation He has given us. By paying close attention to the many witnesses God has given us throughout history and even in our life who can attest to the veracity, the truthfulness of Christ's claims. By their life and testimony, they have given us the confidence that we need to trust Christ with our life. And we have been given the power of Christ through His Spirit. Through the Spirit's indwelling and His gifts to us, we see His power at work in us and through us. May He keep us anchored in Christ as we live for Him. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank You for this, Your Word. We thank you for the writer of Hebrews who has reminded us of the very real drift that is that we are so capable of when we are not paying attention to our lives. And Lord, we confess, I being the foremost, that I don't pay attention to my life enough. And so, O Holy Spirit, would you fix our eyes, fix our gaze upon Jesus. Don't let us take our eyes off Him, that we may bear witness to His glory in our lives, and in our ministry, and in our families, in our workplace, and all the places and people that You bring into our lives. We pray that You would do this for Your glory's sake. Amen.